Assalamualaikum and a very good morning. My name is Dr. Fazila Alauddin and I'm your moderator for this morning. Welcome back to day two of the ENCCR 2020. We had a fruitful day, day one yesterday, officiated by the Honourable Minister of Health and followed by various talks and presentations. We also had the CRC named lecture called Battling Against COVID-19 by the Director General of Health. Today, we will have our Symposium uh, 4 and also plenary talk by three speakers. And it is my pleasure today to moderate the Symposium 2 followed by plenary 4 today. Our first speaker today is Dr. Chiu Cheng Hun of the Institute of Clinical Research, the National Institute of Health, Malaysia. She is currently Doctorate of Public Health Candidate at the National University of Malaysia, UKM. With her experience, skills and passion in drugs and technology trials, ICT and research and development, she will share with us the use of webinar in the era of COVID-19. And with that, the floor is yours, Dr. Chinghun. Thank you, Dr. Fazila. Good morning, everyone. Thank you for having me here for today's presentation. As you can see that um, based on Dr. Fazila's introduction and also on the bottom below here, you know my title is more focused on the webinar and what we do during the COVID-19. We actually started a webinar to actually share information with the healthcare workers. So here are my layouts. So I'm going to share a few information and our experience and how we go about from clueless to emergency transition, nobody can doubt that, that COVID-19 really caught us all off guard and it is really like this picture here, you can see that it is all like, you know, fire ongoing and so messed up and Spongebob in his brain is like, okay, panic, chaos and all. Actually, this morning is also quite chaotic. Just now at this right, maybe 30 minutes before the webinars get live, Prezi actually down and this is an AR Prezi presentation where I need internet, I need the Prezi server to go live and it completely shut. I was like, oh my god, how am I going to do? What is my backup plan? So luckily, fortunately, thank you Prezi for going live again for this. If not, I will have to last minute come up with something else and I'm very grateful for everything that turns out well. And that's what happens when you go live or webinar. You will never know what will happen until the very last moment you go live. When you go live, something can happen too. So you have to really figure out what to do when the things happen. So this is one of the examples and I'm grateful that I managed to go live with you all now. So what is the main aim of this webinar that we do? The main aim of this webinar is to empower healthcare workers working in Malaysia to get the latest information about clinical updates in COVID-19 directly from the experts who are managing COVID-19 to our healthcare workers, no matter where they are in a timely, accessible and free of charge. That's very important. We want to empower everyone with the correct understanding and information throughout this COVID-19 and we need to battle it with the correct way and also to safeguard all our healthcare workers. So that is the emergency transition that we have to go into and you wonder why and how did we do the webinar? So why did we do this webinar? Because of two things, that's COVID-19 disruption as you can see and also the infodemic thing. So I'll go into one point by one point. So when I talk about COVID-19 disruption, here is an overall view of the cases of COVID-19 in Malaysia. First, we had the first wave in late January, just a few cases, and then it died off a cool 11 days without cases, and then second wave come about in late February. And then after that, around 13 of, um, uh, 13 of March, then we decided that the cases are getting up, 
and we are a bit worried, we need to actually empower all our healthcare workers with information. So the clinicians and people, uh, all of us, the researchers in ICR, have discussed that we need to empower the healthcare workers with the correct CNE information. And we discussed with DG and we got approval and we started our webinar. So tentatively, seven days later from 13th of March is our first clinical updates in COVID-19. And one day before our webinar, MCO happened. Then when MMCO happened, suddenly all everything stopped. So it disrupted everyone's life. So there's no more CME, no more physical contact, no more going out. Everyone is at home. So now we have to think how to bring the speaker on board and how we still need to go on with this and we cannot stop. So this is what we have to do. And another reason for this is that, as you can see, here is a few newspaper article cuttings that I'm sharing with you. One is from International. So in overseas, final year medical students are actually being rushed into front line. They are nervous, but they are ready to serve. Same thing, in our MOH, we're also mobilizing staff to become frontliners to help out with the COVID-19 battle. And at the same time, MOH also wrote in 1,000 housemen to contribute and help in the hospital, but they are not directly contact with the frontline in the COVID-19. But we have young MOs who are new to the after housemanship, and our young nurses who have been in service not too long ago, and our MAs, all of them need to know what is the right thing to do to empower and to actually make sure they handle themselves properly, care of themselves and also to safeguard and to treat the patient. So we have to give the information out. This is why the COVID-19 disruption is here. And the next part I'm going to focus on is actually on infodermic. Infodermic, this is a, a quote from our WHO uh, DG. He said, we are not just fighting an epidemic, we are fighting an infodermic. Infodermic comes from two words, information epidemic. That means there's so much information produced digitally every day. So whether it's social media or website or blogs, and including WhatsApp or our chats, people are just forwarding information. Sometimes the fake news or misinformation look more authentic than actually real news. Sometimes it's difficult even to differentiate what is real, what is fake, what sounds correct, but may not be correct. So what's logical may not necessarily be the truth. So we have to, we have to, and it's urgent need to provide timely and accurate information to dispel this infodermic. So these are the two reasons why you need to do it. And that's how we come out on the 19th of March 2020. We successfully have our first session on clinical updates in COVID-19 webinar. So we started at 12 p.m. and we finished at 2 p.m. Malaysia time. And from then on, we start every Thursday to have these clinical updates in COVID-19 with all our healthcare workers. And what did we learn? So I would like to share with you on this. This is a quote from Thomas Edison that he said that I have not failed. I just found 10,000 ways that won't work. Well, I'm very grateful and we are very grateful for everyone who give us feedback uh, from the beginning of our webinar until today. I just share with you some of our earlier experience that is not so smooth going. So these are some of the feedback we get earlier on. Okay, audio is very important for webinar and we have audio issue because on the first webinar, we have overwhelming of participants and we cannot support them. And during lockdown, we cannot buy new equipment, we cannot get new services, we have to make use with what is available, the available resources, that's all we have. So we have to think of innovative way to go about. So I decided to use a phone, to do a Twitter Periscope live TV that put on a tripod next to the LCD screen and rebroadcast, and the audio wasn't great. 
and the um, camera cannot be directly in front because you have your moderator and your speakers there so they need to have the main view so it was slanted so our participants have to tilt their head a little bit to follow on the webinar so these are the feedback and some of them even suggested uh, what are the alternative and what preference they have when they go online or watch uh, online whether it's on YouTube or Facebook live and so on so we take everyone's advice into consideration and then later on, so we started to have positive feedback about, let's say, the pop webinar onwards. So as you can see on the top here, there is a video of Prof. Sasila from UN giving a talk. And at that session, um, it was a bit cute to hear someone who actually commented, is this a live TV uh, broadcast or uh, this is a TV show ongoing? And we find it a little bit funny because we're just ordinary people trying to share uh, clinical updates in COVID-19. And we started to have positive feedback via email and also on social media. And we're very grateful for everyone and we continue to listen and strive to improve after each session. Even now, if you want to provide us feedback, we are welcome and we will listen to your suggestion. So next thing I would like to share with you is the power of social media. There's no doubt social media is very important now. Even infodemics are happening because of our social media enabling on, on this. So when we cannot cope with too many participants on Zoom or Cisco Webex on the initial stage, we actually go on broadcast live in all the social media platform that it's available to go on live broadcast. That is Facebook Live, YouTube Live, Twitter and Periscope TV. We run concurrently means when we go live on Zoom, we also go live on all these four uh, social media platforms. So anyone can watch live together. Nobody is missed out on this. So we can notice that majority of our participants come from Facebook Live. So Malaysian prefer Facebook Live when they come on board on webinar. And then subsequently, international audience come on board using YouTube and also Periscope TV or uh, Twitter Live. So later, I will emphasize a little bit on the importance of hashtag. Now, potential gaps. When one of a webinar, when we are talking about uh, frontliners, um, about mental health on the community and also on our frontliner, so they've talked out on an issue where the students are learning with difficulty because of online learning. So not everyone have unlimited internet. And we even heard one story of one student living in the rural area that they had to climb up a tree to get better coverage connection to study, to do their online learning. So in that case, that got me to thinking, did we neglect any healthcare workers? Did we miss them out when we are doing these COVID-19 updates? So there may be possible that the frontliners are too busy or no time to watch the live webinar when they're going live. Or some of us may have different learning skills. So some of us would like to watch video, some would like to listen to teaching, or some may even like to read books, text. They do not want to be um, on the audio or visual. So everyone of us are unique. We have different learning methods. So we think of that in the consideration. And the lastly, we have healthcare workers who are working in rural or a far away district area where the internet coverage may not be optimal and they may not have unlimited internet like some of us who are in actually urban area. So how do we deal about this? It's important to address this, I guess. So we come up with into more alternative solutions. Number one, we have a dedicated YouTube channel, as you can see. So this YouTube channel will allow any healthcare workers to watch the video after the event. So we go live on YouTube and after that, you can watch it at any time or you can repeat it also. 
And then subsequently, the audio version, we convert it into a podcast, a fully audio version, and upload into the major uh, majority of the audio podcast uh, platform, including Spotify, and then Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, and so on. So you can see some of your other favorite uh, podcast channel or the platform here that's available. The last one, we actually make it available as ebook in multiple formats for your comfort to read. It can be EPUB, PDF, or even plain text on the major uh, ebook platform. So you can download the transcript in that format to actually read it. So besides that, we also heard that many of our healthcare workers are actually watching the webinar live using mobile device or only single device alone. So when you watch live using YouTube or using um, Facebook Live, when they need to ask questions, we actually standardize everyone to use a unified Slido Q&A question. So they may need to leave their platform, social media platform to ask questions in Slido. So when they leave, they may miss out some questions that are being addressed or some of the answers are being discussed. So we do not want anyone to miss out on the discussion. So we come up with this uh, website where NIH website and the COVID-19 blog are two alternative websites where you can watch the YouTube live embedded together and below it is actually the Slido Q&A. So you can have the question asked at the same time and listen to what's going on and you do not miss anything. That's what we do to ensure that it's um, appropriate for everyone. And then we listen to some of you who actually say that we would like to get CME points as well. So because our web webinar is recognized by all our CPD regulatory bodies in Malaysia, MMA, MyCPD, and NSRCPD, so some of them would like to get CPD points after the live webinar. So we come up with an NIH online CME platform where you can take the course on your own time. It's a self-paced, we do not limit uh, the duration of the time. So after you watch the live uh, YouTube webinar or listen or watch or read the ebook, then you answer a self-assessment question when you pass then you will get actually the uh, certificate for your CME points as well. So we will upload the, the CME points for you. So these are what are the things that we actually come up with. After all this, there's something that we did not expect. Our webinar has become international webinar along the way that we did not realize that it happened. So these are the list of the countries that is listed on Spotify. So these are the numbers of the countries our participants are actually tuning live. We are uh, tuning into Spotify to listen to our webinar. So as the red rectangle, you can see are actually the top 10 countries who watch our YouTube live video or subsequent recorded YouTube from the clinical updates of COVID-19. But I would like to highlight a unique point is that Pakistan only follow us on YouTube, but they do not actually follow us on Spotify. That's a unique standout that I can see. And besides that, we noticed that our webinar also being cited by newspaper and also uh, some medical journals like memes, Code Blue, and so on. And these are some examples of the snapshot of the article being featured. And then, um, I, as I mentioned just now about hashtag discovery, the unique part about hashtag is that when we um, update our webinar for the upcoming webinar, so we use relevant hashtag to let our uh, participants know what is it about. So we use one of the hashtags called HPM Global. HPM Global stands for Hospice and Palliative Medicine Global. So this hashtag is very unique. Uh, I didn't know that. So we have a webinar on vulnerable population during COVID-19 pandemic, which cover about our palliative care and how our palliative care services in the country continue to run despite MCO or the lockdown that we have. So it was featured into HPM Global uh, online magazine and also onto their Twitter group. 
So people are watching the um, Twitter hashtag or this hashtag on the internet. So it's uh, very important to focus on social media hashtags when actually you're doing something meaningful. So the next thing is that I'm sharing here with you is an active board. So on Twitter, there is actually Twitter bots. So I heard about Twitter bots, but I don't really know what they do about it. It wasn't my interest in the earlier days. But to my surprise, when I tweet one of our uh, webinar using Appy Twitter, they actually got featured into Twitter bot. So Twitter bot actually will retweet certain tweets using Appy Twitter under the certain algorithm. So when the things are meaningful or within uh, in line with their work, they will actually retweet your tweets. So that will also, in another way, you get a bigger coverage uh, globally as well. So, and then we also were fortunate that the WHO COVID-19 education team also included our clinical updates in COVID webinar into their website platform. So this is their platform where our webinar is being featured there, the YouTube and also the Twitter uh, updates. So here are my final thoughts. Every challenge is an opportunity to succeed. So we may not know everything, but as long as you're willing to take the first step to explore, the sky is the limit. Together, we can win this COVID-19 fight. That's all I can say. And please don't be afraid to try new things. I'm to tell you the truth, I have a confession to make. Using this as a, a presentation way, AR, um, Prezi, it's a, a augmented reality a presentation uh, style. It's new to me. I've never used this in my life. This is my first time using it. And unfortunately, 30 minutes before the webinar go live, the, the server actually went down. I was a bit caught off guard. Also, I have uh, alternative plans in, in case it didn't work out. But fortunately, I'm very grateful that Prezi went online so quickly and I managed to use this to present to you all. And okay, so there is actually a list of uh, social media here. You can also talk to us and uh, follow up or uh, direct message to us if you have any feedback and comment. Thank you very much. And I would like to introduce to you uh, my friend here, Yan Yi. She is a very important person. She's the one with me all the time um, throughout this uh, COVID-19 uh, pandemic MCO, CMCO time whereby she actually uh, stay up 24-7 with me to work out to make sure this uh, webinar go live and all the resources are timely out for all our healthcare workers. Without her, um, things will not be able to work so well. And also we have a team behind, but she's one of the key person that I'd like to share and introduce to you all. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Jenghun. And also, of course, to Yan Li. And uh, if you know, both of them are the main player uh, behind our weekly update on COVID-19. And as mentioned by you, Dr. Cheng Hoon, we are not just fighting an epidemic, we are also fighting an infodemic. Uh, so there are some questions. If uh, anyone would like to post, you can post the questions on the uh, Q&A box or the chat box. Uh, there's one question here today, uh, Dr. Cheng Hoon. Uh, how do we choose or what is the criteria for a suitable platform for a webinar? Okay, thank you very much for the question. And I think that is a very important question. Number one, you need to know your resources. What is your internet bandwidth? Do you have a high speed unlimited internet or your internet infrastructure is limited? So if you have limited internet infrastructure, I would suggest Zoom. Zoom is quite lean. They require a minimum bandwidth. So other platform is possible, but they may use a little bit more bandwidth. So you have a better internet connection speed, you can use other alternative platform. So for me, for my experience, Zoom is quite good in a low internet setting. And of course, you have a simple laptop with your inbuilt in webcam and um, inbuilt microphone will do. That's all you need to go live on the webinar. And there's a free alternative that you can share it on uh, YouTube or Facebook Live if you have that account. Yeah, thank you. And one more question. Uh, a, man, a lot have been mentioned about security. 
and also uh, especially on Zoom and, and so forth. Is there any advice you would like to give to the audience? Follow Zoom update. Follow closely on all the video conference, what they share with you, the updates, security updates and so on. And have best practice. Do not share your password and your login key on social media like a lot of people do. Zoom bombing happened because of people conveniently share their meeting uh, keyword and password, everything online. So anyone can drop in when they know you're having it in advance before that. So as long as you keep it discreet and only share with the participants in the group, having a waiting room to only and why letting people you know to come in is also an alternative. So you need someone to watch out uh, safely, uh, securely, and you also can lock down the room after the meeting started so that it will not be an issue. So these are the few things you can do. Great, thank you. Thank you, Dr. Cheng Hoon. And uh, now, uh, sorry, sorry, there's one more question. We'll take this question. Uh, were there IT or AV people at the NCCR conference during the webinar now? Uh, actually, I find the AR Prezi is quite easy to use. Um, of course, I come in early to actually share with the team that what I'm going to do and set up the thing. So everything went very well, except when the glitches happened, then the IT team came about, the secretary all came about to help me. And then Yanni found out that the system is down. So everyone's like, okay, nothing we can do. <laughs> so they go to plan B. But luckily, they're back to plan A. Thank you. My advice is always have plan A and plan B. Yeah. All right. Thank you. Thank you again, Dr. Cheng Hoon. Mm -hmm. Next, we'll move to our next speaker, Dr. Kuldeep Kaur, Hospital Director of Sungai Buloh Hospital, the main admitting hospital for COVID-19. Dr. Kuldeep is well-respected as hospital administrator and has held various leadership roles in hospital administration. As the Hospital Director of the Primary Hospital for COVID-19, Dr. Kuldeep has transformed the hospital to suit the requirement of a full COVID-19 hospital. It's a pleasure today to, to hear her on the strategies in the pandemic preparedness as the COVID-19 hospital. To you, Dr. Kuldeep. Dr. Kuldeep, uh, we are unable to hear you. So as you see, these are some of the issues and challenges you have when we are doing webinar, but we are learning as we go on and we are trying to solve for Dr. Kuldeep. As you are very much aware, Hospital Sungai Buloh was the primary hospital that was set up for during the COVID and we had seven hospitals that was dedicated as a full COVID hospital. So Dr. Kuldeep today will share with us her experience in setting up this hospital as a full COVID hospital. Sorry, Dr. Kuldeep, we, we are unable to uh, hear you to now. Perhaps we can move to the next speaker while we try to sort it out. Is that okay, Dr. Kuldeep? Yeah? Okay. So I, I think uh, due to some technical glitches, we will try to come back to Dr. Kuldeep. We will continue to our plenary four session on COVID-19 or the future. And uh, with us today, we have Dr. Organ, Professor Organ Gurel to enlighten us on new paradigm and in medicine and healthcare. Prof. Organ Gurel is a visiting professor at the Dengu Kionbok Institute of Science and Technology, Korea. Over 35 years, he has held various roles in multiple sectors with domain expertise in medical devices, digital health, molecular biophysics, and medical imaging. Prof. Gurel is currently the advisor for the Crest Malaysia Digital Healthcare Cluster. With great pleasure, I hand over to Prof. Organ Gurel. 
Thank you very much, Dr. Aluddin, for the kind introduction. Thank you to all for joining us at NCCR 2020. It's a real honor and pleasure to be here, although a little bit sad, actually, because as Dr. Aluddin mentioned, uh, I'm an advisor with Crest Malaysia, and I was there in October. And uh, it's sad that because of the pandemic, uh, I won't have a chance to see my friends there and colleagues. So I'm sorry for that, but it's very good that we can use technology as outlined by the previous uh, speaker via webinar to uh, bring us together here. And so indeed my topic is COVID-19 in the future, new paradigms in medicine and healthcare. And as Dr. Aluddin mentioned, I'm a professor at uh, Solbridge International School of Business, a professor at Digist, and I also work with several startups in healthcare. And um, the topic for today is COVID-19 in the future, new paradigms in medicine and healthcare. So one of the big issues that we've been talking about today is uh, what are we doing now? What is the status of COVID-19? We were supposed to hear from the previous speaker. Uh, I will speak a little bit about future technologies, future paradigms that uh, may help with COVID uh, because this is going to go on for a while, uh, but maybe more for the future. And one of the particular reasons why this is very relevant for Malaysia is that some of these concepts relate to electronics and Malaysia has a significant expertise in electronics. There's a significant electronics uh, industry. In fact, Crest is an important part of that uh, ecosystem and sector. And so this also represents some opportunities for Malaysia as well. So I start with a quote here from uh, Immanuel Kant, two things fill the mind with ever increasing uh, admiration and awe, the starry heavens above and the moral law within. Uh, that quote is a little bit uh, philosophical, obviously, uh, but it will become relevant uh, in terms of medicine and science and what I will be talking about later on in this presentation. So the outline for the presentation will take four parts. I'll raise some key motivating questions. I'll talk about some fundamentals of this science that represents the future of healthcare some research results, including those related to COVID-19 and uh, applications. Great, so uh, let me start from the beginning. Uh, again, my topic is COVID-19 in the future, new paradigms in medicine and health. And um, if there is one take home message that uh, you take away from the next uh, 40 minutes or so, it's this uh, picture of a protein. Proteins are very important, of course, with viruses and so forth. And uh, this protein is vibrating. And that's a key a visual that I hope you'll take away from this uh, uh, presentation. So as I mentioned very briefly at the beginning, and we had a little technical glitch, two things fill the mind with ever new and increasing admiration and awe, the starry heavens above and the moral law within. This is from the famous German philosopher, Immanuel Kant. So the outline of this presentation is going to take four parts. First are some key questions. Second will be some fundamentals. Third will be some research results, including those pertinent to COVID-19. And fourth will be some applications that uh, relate more generally to medicine, as well as with COVID-19. Uh, as I mentioned at the outset of the presentation, uh, we had these uh, technical glitches. Uh, I think these concepts are very important for Malaysia and in particular with Crest 
because it relates to certain technologies that Malaysia has strengths and where the ecosystem may play an important role in facilitating this future of healthcare. So now to key questions. First question, why is COVID such a big problem? Second question is what is the future of diagnosis? Third is what is the future of therapy? Fourth is what is the future of technology? And fifth is how does life work? So why is COVID-19 such a big problem? First of all, we need to understand, as many of you already do, of course, is what is a virus? A virus is essentially genetic material contained within an organic particle that invades living cells and uses the host's metabolic machinery to produce new virus particles. That is a virus, and that's a little bit uh, technical, but the key question related to this definition of a virus is what are viruses in terms of are they living? Are viruses alive, simply put? So as we know, the virus has three parts from inside to outside, an inner nucleic acid, which in this case is RNA, a lipid membrane, and thirdly, a spike protein. The nucleic acid determines the uh, genetic material. It can mutate with implications for immunity and vaccines. It's used for testing. The lipid envelope uh, determines the environmental viability. And so we call these envelope viruses. So that's one reason why soap and alcohol disrupt this membrane. It is essentially like a fatty uh, surface. And thirdly, and very importantly, is the spike protein. The spike protein determines the target, the ACE2 uh, protein in human cells. It's blocked by antibodies, and it's also used for various types of testing. So nucleic acid, spike protein, and lipid membrane. So back to the question, are viruses alive? The essential answer is no, viruses are not alive. So you can't technically kill them. There are only two ways to get rid of the virus. One is to physically destroy it. And the second to have it cleared by the immune system. So this has very important implications uh, in terms of antivirals, in terms of vaccines, in terms of social measures, etc. It's not exactly like uh, many other diseases and certainly not like bacterial diseases where a drug in many cases can effectively kill it viruses, we have to basically do other approaches to address the problem. So antibiotics don't exist for viruses. Everyone knows about antivirals though. What are those? Well, unlike miracle antibiotics, which kill bacteria, antivirals cannot kill viruses. And one cannot kill that which is not alive, as I mentioned. So antivirals basically block, uh, slow down various processes in the cell. This is a little bit of complicated slide, but it shows you that the uh, virus gets into the cell, the virus hijacks the cell's machinery as I outlined, and then produces new viruses. So in red, you can see various antiviral strategies from blocking fusion to blocking endocytosis or bringing the virus into the cell. Uh, hydroxychloroquine, which has been much mentioned, works at this step. Uh, interfering with proteolysis, so ritonavir, remdesivir, interfere with translation and RNA replication. There's also packaging and virus release. So these are various points at which antivirals have some effect, but they don't effectively kill the virus. They slow down the virus, allowing the immune system to clear it. So what is the future of diagnosis? On this uh, table, you can see here various modalities for diagnosis in medical imaging from x-rays to ultrasound to MRI to uh, PET scans. And one key point is that essentially no new modalities 
have emerged since the early 1980s. You see a lot of innovation towards the right here. And this sort of innovation is what we call incremental innovation, building on existing modalities. So the future of diagnosis or medical imaging should imply that perhaps there are new modalities that we can use for imaging viral infections, uh, better imaging of cancer, better imaging of uh, conditions uh, in medicine. So what is the future of therapy? This is a chart of new drugs as a function of research dollars over time. And you can see that the number of new drugs per research dollars has been steadily decreasing. And in fact, uh, since the turn of the century, about $1 billion for one drug to produce. So apart from incremental advances, we have some level of uh, innovation being stalled in uh, biopharma as well. Uh, George Yankopoulos, a uh, very prominent uh, executive in the pharmaceutical industry, wrote that successfully inventing and developing any new drug or vaccine is quantifiably among the hardest things that human beings try to do. So drug development is exceedingly difficult. So the future of therapy should imply new approaches, new paradigms to treating disease. And that's what we will talk about today as well. Uh, fourthly, what is the future of technology? There is a approach to predicting the future of technology and people at Crest and other government agencies are always trying to understand what is the future of technology? How can we align what benefits people? How can we align the economic ecosystem and so forth to meet future technologies? And we can often predict the future of technology, maybe not the specifics or bet on specific uh, companies or stocks, et cetera, but the overall themes of technology progress in predictable ways. So for example, uh, a immovable system will eventually have multiple parts and eventually involve some sort of energy aspect. We call this technique of predicting the future of technology TRIS. So for example, a steering wheel goes from rigid all the way to electrical steering. A door goes from a single leaf door all the way to a Star Wars-like light lock. And uh, landlines or wired connections go to wireless and so forth. So in medicine, what is the current technological paradigm? The current technological paradigm is what we would call a matter-on-matter -matter paradigm. A drug has to physically bind to a target protein. Remember I mentioned about proteins being important in this uh, presentation. Or a instrument or hand has to physically touch a uh, target tissues in the case of surgery. We call this a matter-on-matter -matter paradigm. The future, again, going by this evolutionary prediction, will inevitably be an energy on matter paradigm. And that is the future paradigm of medicine. The last question, motivating question, the big picture question, if you will, is how does life work? This is a little bit of a spaghetti diagram, but it is what is called a proteome or interactome of a proteome. In other words, each of the nodes on this diagram is a protein in the yeast, uh, which is a uh, unicellular organism, eukaryotic organism used for a lot of research studies. Of course, the same can be said for human cells in, in a more complicated way. But essentially, each node is a protein and the lines between them represent the interaction between different proteins. And essentially, life progresses because one protein binds or interacts with another protein. But this is all very remarkable. And in fact, uh, 
how does this work at the speed of light? How can we think? How can we move? How can we talk? All of these activities happening very quickly just by the random bumping together of proteins. Uh, that, of course, is the paradigm of uh, molecular biology. But there may be other ways that the proteins are interacting over a distance and some sort of interactions that are facilitated to enable uh, more uh, directed interactions, if you will. And I'll reference this as a fundamental question that this concept will relate to. So where do we go from here? What might be the future paradigms for COVID-19? What will be the future of medicine and healthcare more generally? And how can we better understand the fundamental mechanisms of life? So the story of this paradigm, uh, at least my involvement in it, begins over 30 years ago. Uh, proteins are neither solid nor liquid. They are something in between. This is uh, my professor, Martin Karplus, who was uh, my thesis advisor in 1985, 1986. And he was one of the pioneers in what's called molecular dynamics of biological macromolecules and a pioneer in protein dynamics. So let's now talk about the fundamentals. Fundamentals, what are proteins? What are the axioms of protein electrodynamics? What are some scientific questions? What is terahertz and what is terahertz medicine? So we're getting more specific here. Proteins, what do they look like? These are two representative proteins. They are the machinery of life. That's how uh, we do all the activities of life in the cells. They are the targets of drugs and they are also the targets of vaccines uh, as well as the targets of, of viruses. So some representative proteins are myoglobin. This is a oxygen carrying protein basic fibroblast growth factor. This is the androgen receptor. This is human growth factor. The point of this slide is to sh show you that proteins have all different sizes and shapes and so forth. And what do they do? Well, basically they do everything. They're structural proteins like collagen, storage proteins like the myoglobin I showed, transport proteins, which we'll see some examples, hormones, receptor proteins like the ACE protein, which is a receptor for the SARS spike protein, contractile proteins like actin and myosin in the muscles, defensive proteins like antibodies, and of course, enzymes. So here's an example of the voltage-dependent potassium channel that's involved in the nerve impulse. And you can see here that this potassium channel is moving. It uh, has these large-scale movements. So many of you have heard of nanotechnology as a new technology, but the original nanotechnology, the original nanomachines are in fact these proteins where they're like little uh, machines that uh, open and close. So this channel opens and closes for potassium to go through. So that is the voltage dependent potassium channel. So we bring all these concepts together in what I call protein electrodynamics, which is the fundamental paradigm that I will describe here. So as I mentioned, proteins are vibrating. They are not like Martin Karplus, uh, they are not, as Martin Karplus taught us, they're not static, but they are like liquid and solid in between. So you can see this vibrating protein. Number two, proteins are charged. Uh, so they have positive and negative charges on them. So this is the acetylcholinesterase protein. It has negative charges inside the binding site here and positive charges around it. And then there's, of course, Maxwell's equations or the laws of electric. Uh, electromagnetism, which dictate how radios, how smartphones, how all our devices work. These Maxwell's equations basically say that vibrating charges will either emit or absorb electromagnetic radiation. And therefore proteins emit radiation 
and proteins also absorb radiation. That means these proteins are like little radios. We can detect them and we can influence them at a distance. And these are the, what I call axioms of protein electrodynamics. So as I mentioned, Martin Karplus and others taught us that proteins vibrate. This is the original paper in Nature in 1977. And uh, he got the Nobel Prize partially for this work in 2013. Uh, so this is a very established area of basic science, namely protein dynamics. So here are some examples, proteins vibrate. So you can see here, this one, this is glucosamine 6-phosphate deaminase, and it's uh, not a static uh, molecule, it's vibrating. Here's another one. This is a protein with cysteine coordinated with zinc. So there's a little bit of a zooming in of that. You can see water molecules popping in and out. Here's another one, beta-galactosidase. And here's a third, fourth one, xylanase, the molecular dynamic simulation of the protein uh, vibrating. So how do we know this? Not just the theoretical studies. There's a, uh, a technique called inelastic neutron scattering, where we can measure the softness of a protein. This is Giuseppe Zakai, who I worked with also back in the late 1980s out of France. And based on that, uh, the neutron scattering, Jeremy Smith, uh, also was a former postdoc in the Martin Karplus lab did myoglobin, that protein I showed you. So this is the theory, this is the experiment. And it turns out that the proteins are in this terahertz and subterahertz range, about 0.45 to 0.6 terahertz in the case of this myoglobin, that's the peak uh, vibration. So this is about 450 to 600 gigahertz. So for proteins, low terahertz and high frequency infrared motions are different. So infrared is insensitive to the backbone motions. Infrared is the infrared thermometer. It's related to heat. The differences between proteins are washed out. So many proteins have these similar structures. But with terahertz, and I'll show you these results uh, later, the differences between proteins, even similar ones are apparent. And large scale motions, as I showed you with that potassium channel, are responsible for the protein function, which is how drugs interfere with these proteins and interfere with their function. So if we compare infrared to terahertz, we see that uh, the terahertz motions are more related to potential diagnosis and are more related to potential treatment methods. So some scientific questions, do proteins vibrate at different frequencies? Yes. Can we identify different proteins based on their spectrum? Yes, but it's not easy. Uh, protein anharmicity, is it significant? It may depend. Can in one influence protein function by modulating their vibrations? This is unknown. How far might these electromagnetic fields propagate? Maybe one millimeter. Could protein electrodynamics mediate specific interactions between proteins? In other words, one protein has an electromagnetic field and influencing another protein. And could proteins communicate over a distance? These scientific questions underlie the applications to diagnosis and treatments. So let's go into a little bit of the physics. What is terahertz? Terahertz is the electromagnetic energies between the microwave on the low energy side and the infrared on the high energy side, corresponding to 10 to the 12 cycles per second. Until recently, it's been very difficult to engineer this radiation because it lies between what we call the electronics regime and the photonics regime. So there are two different methods of producing 
radiation. One is using unbound electrons in electronics, and the other one is using bound electrons using infotonics. But ironically, terahertz is all around us, emitted by all living organisms, as we are all composed of proteins. So we are actually emitting naturally terahertz by these uh, proteins that we have. It should also be noted that terahertz waves are strongly absorbed by water. So this represents an opportunity as well as a challenge. And then in a engineering standpoint, terahertz is the last frontier in the electromagnetic spectrum. Uh, microwave, infrared, visible, X-rays, these are all very well established for thousands of years, hundreds of years in the case of X-rays uh, in order to produce radiation in these areas. But terahertz is not. This is a one terahertz frequency. This is power output, the photonics approach, and the electronics approach. And you can see that the power output gets lower as we approach what we call the terahertz gap. So this is very difficult uh, cutting edge uh, technology. What are the natural sources of terahertz radiation? You remember that quote I said from uh, Immanuel Kant, two things fill the mind with ever new and increasing admiration and awe, the starry heavens above and the moral law within. So what I mean to say is that there's a natural terahertz coming from the sky, that's the starry heavens above, from the cosmic microwave background. Uh, many of you are familiar with the Big Bang and the origins of the universe. And there is a buzz out there, as it were, a kind of background microwave noise that we call the cosmic microwave background is the remnant, the energy, energetic remnant of that Big Bang. But that is a black body. In other words, it has a, a variety of frequencies and there's a small portion of it that's actually in the terahertz. And then this painting is meant to depict that people or you know, living organisms also emit terahertz radiation. So the starry heavens above and the moral law within. So the New York City Police Department uses this sort of concept to detect weapons at a distance. So there are security applications. So this is a terahertz detector and the person is emitting terahertz because they're made of proteins, as I mentioned but a concealed weapon like a gun or a knife is made of metal, it's not made of proteins. So it will appear as a contrast underneath the clothing of this person. And this is the same concept used in airports in some screening where you raise your arms and these are called millimeter wave scanner and it's a very similar concept. So you can think of the airport scanner as a very primitive, uh, simple, early kind of medical imaging. Obviously they're looking for weapons, but just like x-rays, there's a different sort of uh, energy. So there are two technical challenges, terahertz sources of sufficient power and spectral resolution. There are all sorts of different approaches to this. And of course, water absorption is an opportunity and a challenge. The water is a, uh, is a hydrogen bonded network. It's in, fact, in effect a macromolecule that's also vibrating just like proteins. So they have their absorption in terahertz range. So what are the principles of terahertz medicine? A diagnosis, we can do imaging, structural, and spectroscopy looking at specific proteins or specific constituents. So we combine structural and functional imaging and spectroscopy. And then energy-based treatment based on those frequencies to influence particular uh, proteins. And that's what I call the future energy on matter paradigm. So the three principles of terahertz medicine are resonance on the targets, localization, specific area of the body, 
and targets that have some functional significance. So if we think about the virus, the COVID-19, it has a spike protein. That protein has a pativic uh, dynamics. It can be localized to different parts of the body or it can be localized on a surface and it has a function. That function of the spike protein is to bind to uh, a target protein. So if we can influence the, the vibrations of that spike protein, that would be one way of inactivating the virus. And I'll talk about this more. Obviously, there are other applications. So the optimal targets in terrorist medicine are proteins with significant charges and dipoles and significant large-scale motions evolving their function. We call this electrodynamically active. So these are typically allosteric regulatory proteins, ion channels like the, sodium, the potassium channel I showed you, signal transduction proteins, transcription factors, and so forth. So these are all typical drug targets are likely to be optimal targets also for an electromagnetic approach. So for example, this transport protein that we talked about, the voltage-dependent potassium channel, it has a lot of charges related to it. It has a big motion. There's likely to be a significant electromagnetic signature related to this protein, either for diagnostic purposes or for therapeutic purposes to influence that function. So let's talk a little bit about some research results. This is not a research seminar, but I'll give you some background uh, related in general, as well as with COVID-19. So one of these is some protein spectroscopy and other studies. The open innovation program that I worked on when I was at Samsung and uh, serves very similar to what Crest in Malaysia is doing in terms of bringing different members of the ecosystem together some studies on the terahertz imaging of cancer, terahertz imaging of Alzheimer's disease, two-dimensional terahertz spectroscopy, and an integrated terahertz source and sensor with some conclusions. Many of these studies were done in collaboration with Hanyang University, the Ohio State University, MIT, and UC Irvine uh, in California. So one concept to bear in mind is the difference between time domain and frequency domain spectroscopy. Uh, some of you are not technical uh, physicists, uh, but roughly speaking, time domain spectroscopy is the principle used in NMR or MRI, where you uh, do a wide range of frequencies and sample all the frequencies at once. We call that time domain. Uh, frequency domain measurements would be more like specific frequencies one by one. Uh, that would be like in the uh, thermometer that you do for infrared, you sample at a particular frequency. Uh, so time domain and frequency domain measurements. Now the reason I mention this is that most experiments in physics in terahertz are done in the time domain. And in biomedical applications, the more useful experiment is in the frequency domain. You can imagine many proteins with different frequencies if you do the time domain, then you will confuse the whole picture. So that's one characteristic of the field that we need to overcome. So the initial studies I want to show you are related to myoglobin and hemoglobin. They are oxygen storage and oxygen transport proteins, respectively. Uh, this was done at the Samsung Advanced Institute of Technology, Hanyang University at the Pohang Accelerator Lab in Korea. This is set up, you can see it's quite complex. The laser comes in and the uh, optical uh, beams are reflected and 
so forth along this uh, optical table. This is the sample box. The sample box is here. You pull out the water, you reduce the height, uh, the water content, and so forth. So we got a basic result here with uh, hemoglobin and a myoglobin that will show, and we presented those results in a number of conferences. So this is the comparison of myoglobin and hemoglobin. Hemoglobin uh, bovine from the cow in red, hemoglobin human in blue, myoglobin in green, and the basic concept using this time domain spectroscopy is we saw differences between myoglobin and hemoglobin. We saw species specificity differences between cow and human hemoglobin. They're very similar proteins, but actually we can detect a spectroscopic difference. We also saw what's called a Stokes shift or emission absorption at the high frequency, high energy, and the protein pumps out energy at lower frequency, lower energy. This was not a uh, artifact. Uh, we see a real resonance. The blue you can see is an artifact. These are real results. And you can see that uh, the 450 gigahertz that we saw with the previous inelastic neutron scattering uh, was also replicated with uh, myoglobin and hemoglobin here, 450 gigahertz. And that's the comparison that I mentioned. You, that previous paper with Martin Karplus and Jeremy Smith with the inelastic neutron scattering, 450 gigahertz approximate uh, frequency. So the conclusions are broad yet specific low frequency absorption. We can differentiate between very similar proteins and the globin folds show similar frequency features but with some differences. And then we saw possible stimulated emission with proteins as terahertz emitters at low frequency. Now you might have said that those results were not so impressive, the spectrum was kind of soft, etc. But sharp protein resonances exist, and I don't want to go into the technical details, but this is a study out of Buffalo. Andrea Markels with the lysozyme, another very important protein, uh, shows a sharp resonance at 1.5 terahertz. And these motions actually change with biological functions. And this is the same lysozyme. This is the motion, the hinging motion, the transition dipole in one direction. This is the same lysozyme with an inhibitor or a drug, and you can see the motion has changed with another direction and a twisting motion. So a hinge motion shifts to a twisting motion when you bind a drug to it. So imagine that instead of binding the drug, we can influence those motions electromagnetically and hence influence the function of the protein electromagnetically. So cancer and protein electrodynamics, we have um, uh, proteins involved in uh, different proteins are involved in cancer, obviously. So this is a SARC protein. Some of you who are in oncology can recognize this. This is a what we call an oncogene or oncoprotein. This red is a heat map of the motion. The wild type is the normal protein. The one on the right is the mutated protein. And so different proteins when they're normal and cancerous have different motional characteristics. So when I was at Samsung, I arranged uh, <clears throat> several projects to come together in an open innovation program. The Ohio State project, which I'll talk about uh, using this principle with uh, cancer diagnosis. MIT to do 2D terahertz spectroscopy to help define those uh, features. Therapeutics at the University of Southampton and using a silicon-based integrated system at UC Irvine. So we did a uh, experiment with terahertz imaging of cancer, which we published uh, a couple of times. 
One is uh, uh, showing differences between cancerous and normal tissue. We also did a similar study with amyloidosis and Alzheimer's disease. And we did, uh, uh, again, time domain spectroscopy. This is the setup. This is the light microscopy. This is the terahertz image. And we can sell Alzheimer's disease from uh, control tissues. As I mentioned at MIT, in order to get more specific spectroscopy, we did 2D uh, spectroscopy. This was with Keith Nelson and submitted and were granted a US patent for that. And as I mentioned on the electronic side, you can go up from electronics and create terahertz and also terahertz sensors. And this was a chip uh, designed by uh, Payam Hedari at the University of Irvine that we helped fund that uh, study. And this is a 300 gigahertz frequency synthesizer uh, on a chip. So this can be highly miniaturized. We also did a similar uh, support, a similar work at the University of Texas, Dallas with Kenneth O. And the concept is you can have a handheld system that can be used for diagnosis and potentially treatment. So finally, can one modulate protein function via terahertz? Can we change proteins via this terahertz? There's a recent study produced out of Japan, June 2nd of this year, terahertz irradiation changing the structure of actin. This is actin which is a protein involved in motion, muscles. And you can see that under the uh, electron microscopy that these networks have been changed through terahertz and, and they uh, subtracted out the heating effect. But it's still an open question. So the overall conclusion, terahertz interacts with proteins, definite signals observed, continuous wave or frequency domain spectroscopy might be better for this purpose. We can also distinguish different tissues, normal and diseased. We can use this for imaging, we can use it for spectroscopy, and we need to improve the technology. But miniaturization by silicon-based CMOS platforms is a possibility, and this is why this is very much related to Malaysia's strengths in semiconductor technology, and Crest in particular, in creating a new paradigm for medicine. There's some issues with water penetration. I'm not gonna go into the technical details here, but uh, we can focus on the range where water is penetrated less, we can also use specific frequencies or tunability, the frequency domain, as I mentioned, to achieve penetration in water windows. We can also use pulse radiation, short pulses, as well as higher power. Uh, based on the biology back to physics, we have, as I mentioned, two types of approaches, electronics and photonics. The photonic sources are both uh, time domain the vacuum electronic sources are also time domain. So the most promising approach is probably going to be the solid state, as I mentioned, CMOS approach. And the future of medicine is very much around this integration or convergence. And this is surgical technology. This is drugs. This is radiation therapy. This is imaging. This is matter. This is energy. So protein electrodynamics and terahertz medicine is very much a convergence concept. So I'll end the next few minutes with some applications. Uh, why new medicine, what are the potential applications, terahertz light switch, cancer, antibiotic resistance, how uh, new paradigms for COVID-19, and some final conclusions. So we fundamentally need a new approach to diagnosis and treatment. I showed you this slide about medical imaging. I showed you this slide about uh, biopharma innovation. 
I showed you this slide about how technology evolves eventually will be an energy on matter paradigm. So energy on matter will be the future paradigm of met medicine, greater specificity, more non-invasive, greater effectiveness, lower cost, more rapid therapy development. We're still, we're still waiting for antivirals. We could potentially do this much faster and a convergence of medicine and surgery as I described. So this new medicine in terms of electromagnetic medicine uh, is increasing. We see Time Magazine, we see Google combining with drug companies, we see uh, research efforts increasing around the world. What are the potential applications? Cancer, infectious disease, neuroscience, uh, diabetes, and more. It's a platform technology. So one possible experiment is a terahertz light switch. Most of you are familiar with bioluminescence with uh, jellyfish and fireflies. Imagine if you can just turn that on and off the visual thing switch with a terahertz control. Uh, cancer and microtubules. Uh, Taxol is a, a very powerful anti-cancer drug, but it has very high side effects given systemically. So Taxol acts on microtubules, which are proteins that are involved in cell division. Those proteins have their dynamics. If you can influence those electromagnetically, that would be a universal cancer treatment. Um, we have uh, novel low-cost resistance, resistant antibiotic therapy. We've been talking about pandemics, but another big era is a post-antibiotic era where we have bacterial infections that cannot be treated by antibiotic. And it takes years to develop a new antibiotic. So imagine instead if we can have uh, some way of zapping those bacteria, they're key proteins, and if they mutate and have a slightly different frequency, then we basically adjust those frequencies and the development cycle for developing uh, drugs that uh, act on these mutated uh, forms will be much faster. So at an Institute Pasteur in Korea, we've discussed the possibility of doing a drug screening. And instead of drug screening, we use terahertz screening to isolate phenotypically relevant uh, targets. Now we mentioned about the handheld thermal scanner for testing temperature. Imagine a handheld COVID scanner. So instead of doing a nasal swab or a blood test, you can just shine an instrument and you say, oh, there's the spike protein there. So this is a project that we are doing at Middle Eastern Technical University with Professor Hakan Altan, and my collaborator Min Sok Kim, surf enhanced plasmonic terahertz absorption to identify biological molecules, and we are looking at SARS-CoV-2 as a potential real-time uh, at a distance detector of COVID uh, virus. Prof, you have two more minutes, Prof. Yeah, we're finishing up, thank you. All right. And remember, we had some technical glitches because I was starting yes. early. <laughs> yes, I appreciate your consideration. Yeah. So I had to jump in. Uh, <laughs> So there are also medical and military applications. If you can modulate protein function for medical purposes, you can also use it for military purposes. Now, obviously that's not the purpose of today's discussion, uh, but uh, terahertz electronics research for defense, mostly focused on battlefield sensing and communications, but also there are some weapons possibilities. So some of you may remember President Trump talking about uh, some very controversial things, electromagnetic. He didn't talk about this, but if you listen to his press conference, uh, uh, one second. Very interesting. So supposing we hit the body, 
with a tremendous, uh, whether it's ultraviolet or just very powerful light. And I think you said that hasn't been checked, but you're going to test it. And then I said, supposing you brought the light inside the body, you can, which you can do either through the skin or uh, in some other way. And I think you said you're going to test that too. Sounds interesting. Right. And then I see the disinfectant. So my point is, uh, could you hear that? Yes, we, we heard that. Okay, so obviously that was very controversial. A lot of people were saying things, and I'm not trying to be political whether I support or not. But I thought that was very interesting because I imagine uh, President Trump was giving away some very significant national security secrets because he probably received a national security briefing that related to this type of radiation being used for weapons. And of course, the economy is uh, uh, going bad and people are dying. And he said, maybe we can repurpose this for COVID. And President Trump, you know, in his way, uh, kind of simplifying and, and maybe not fully understanding, was mentioning that. So that was a very interesting press conference. Uh, and those sorts of things are potentially in development. Uh, obviously, you know, not more details from there. So uh, terahertz physics has been uh, increasing interest, industrial and medical. The technology has improved a lot. The cost has decreased. You've heard about Star Trek being a predictor of uh, technology, the communicator leading to the mobile phone, the tricorder leading ultimately to some kind of quadcorder, a handheld device for diagnosis, but even more for treatment. So this is more than just about technology. It's a whole paradigm shift. I've also written a novel about it. Uh, and uh, this is basically the literary uh, exposition of this idea that also explores the social dimensions. Uh, this is the voltage-gated potassium channel that I mentioned. It's actually mentioned in uh, chapter 19 as one of the applications. So some closing thoughts. Protein molecules are the machine of life. They're solid. Not solid, but they're vibrating. They have charges, uh, so they can emit and absorb energy. Proteins are like radios, leading to protein electrodynamics, leading to an entirely new approach to diagnosis and therapy, which is terahertz medicine. I've, taught, I've uh, presented this around the world in the United States, in Europe, in Australia, and of course in Asia. And it's my pleasure to present it here. I believe this is the future of medicine and I believe there are significant possibilities for COVID-19 in the not too far distant future, which we are also working on. So finally, uh, Isaac Newton, who is a founder of uh, physics, modern physics, as many, as all of you know, he describes uh, this electric and elastic spirit in the context of biology, which he was very interested in. Uh, another hero of mine is Richard Feynman in his lectures on physics. Everything that living things do can be understood in terms of the jigglings and wigglings of atoms. And I met with Martin Karplis and gave a presentation on this at his Nobel Prize Symposium. Proteins are neither solid nor liquid, they are something in between, as he uh, told me. And I asked him after my seminar, what would you suggest? I would do the experiment on an enzyme. If it works, it would be significant. So in the beginning, technology is not always pretty, but dreams can fly and moonshots as well as Mars shots are possible. I thank you very much. I can be reached on LinkedIn uh, and also by email, ogangorel at gmail.com. 
Sorry that I'm a little bit late. Uh, we had a little bit uh, of a technical uh, issue we had to jump into, but I appreciate the opportunity. I appreciate your listening. And uh, I think we solved it. Thank you, uh, Dr. Alawuddin. Thank you. Thank you, Prof, uh, for sharing with us the new paradigm, paradigm in medicine and healthcare. For those who would like to ask for any questions, you can post it on the question and answer uh, chat box. Uh, Prof, there's two questions that has come in through email. Uh, perhaps if you could take this. In the past, the South Korea regulation prohibits the monitoring of health vital signs via IoT and, smart and smartphone devices. What is the current status? Uh, yes, well, actually, um, so that doesn't relate to terahertz medicine, but more with uh, South Korea. Uh, actually, telemedicine is illegal in Korea. And uh, so even though Korea is very technologically advanced and we have a lot of digital healthcare uh, companies, or at least technology, the actual practice of digital healthcare is not possible in Korea. And there are essentially two reasons for that. One is that uh, Korea is, one, one is a, how should I say, social reason, the other one is a market reason. Uh, the market reason is Korea is actually has a very good healthcare system with a very good access. It's a very geographically small country uh, and there are doctors everywhere and there are a few rural areas that is more difficult, but in general, I would say 95% of the population uh, is five minutes away from a doctor. Uh, I know that's hard to believe, but uh, or maybe 15 minutes away. So telemedicine really doesn't have a market uh, value proposition. Uh, the legal reason or social reason is the, all those doctors that are spread around uh, are concerned that they'll lose their patients to the top academic medical centers if telemedicine is a possibility. Uh, everybody wants to go to the top center instead of going to the neighborhood doctor. So I think, uh, although as a doctor, I believe that having that access and going to your neighborhood doctor is also related to very good quality care, not just going to the academic centers. So for those two major reasons, uh, telemedicine and what you mentioned about the information and IoT are very problematic and in some cases not legal. Uh, I don't think that's the case with Malaysia. I think Malaysia is more geographically dispersed. Uh, I'm not talking about good or bad healthcare. I just think that uh, it is a much bigger country uh, and more geographically dispersed country than uh, South Korea. So I think that the value proposition and the need for this type of uh, technology is much greater in uh, Malaysia or other countries, uh, Indonesia, Australia, United States, etc. But in Korea, there's not as much of a need. That's, a, that's the answer to that question. I have uh, two more questions that has come in. Thank you for your new information. In conclusion, do we want to capture frequency released by protein from coronavirus in infected body? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, looking off into the future, I think that this is a possibility. Uh, the virus, as I mentioned at the beginning, has specific proteins that are unique to it. They should have some spectral uh, uniqueness that can be used either for diagnostic purposes, as I mentioned, to pick up those frequencies and hence detect the virus, not just on the body, but on surfaces, for example. Uh, so diagnostically, but as I also implied, one could also inactivate the virus. This is what President Trump perhaps was uh, 
you know, vaguely uh, hinting at, we could inactivate the virus electromagnetically by inactivating those proteins on its surface. So that's also an area of great interest. Uh, whether we inactivate it on surfaces, of course, you could do that with bleach and alcohol, as I mentioned, simple, you don't need fancy technology, or inactivate that in the body. That's what I think President Trump was hinting at by putting, you know, high energy or intense light that uh, was probably simplified for him because he's not a scientist. But uh, my guess is that's what they were, they were considering. Because, uh -huh. of course, ultra, ultraviolet light is dangerous in the body, so that's not an option. Yeah. Uh, but the terahertz is not ionizing, so it has an effect on biology, but not, not like ionizing radiation like ultraviolet or x-rays, which are clearly dangerous. Thanks, Prof. Thanks. Thank you for all your uh, knowledge and sharing with us. However, due to interest of time, we are unable to take the two or three more questions. Uh, perhaps, sure, I understand. Yeah, perhaps, Prof, if you can answer them online, that would be great. And we'll be also sharing the recording to the others. So with that, uh, let's thanks Prof. Organ Gorel, and thank you again. Thanks, Prof. Thank you. Thank you very much. I appreciate the opportunity. Glad we could fix the problem. Yes. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Next, we will move on to Dr. Kuldeep. Dr. Kuldeep, sorry about the technical glitches. Are you okay there? You ready? Yeah, I'm already here. Okay, okay I, I think I will just quickly, briefly uh, introduce you again. Dr. Kuldeep Kaur is the hospital director of Sungai Buloh Hospital, the main admitting hospital for COVID-19. And Dr. Kuldeep is well respected as an hospital administrator and has held various leadership roles in hospital administration. It's a pleasure to, for us today to hear her on the strategies in the pandemic preparedness as COVID-19 hospital. To you, Dr. Kuldeep. Thank you, Dr. Fazila. I'll, I'll, I'll quickly move on. Um, as we all know, in Malaysia, the first three cases uh, were detected on the 25th January, 2020. I'm going to start on uh, right away. Um, uh, and hence from there, Ministry of Health declared uh, Sungai Bulo Hospital as COVID-19 hospital for Klang Valley as of 12 March 2020. Sungai Bulo, as any other hospital, um, is the secondary and the tertiary uh, hospital. It uh, started off with, in 2006 with 620 bedded multidisciplinary specialist hospital. It's the center of infectious disease in the country and also the center of excellence of other, other, other specialties like spine and trauma and cornea and also upper GI. So being a secondary and a tertiary or rather having center of excellence for certain uh, specialties or subspecialties, it's a very busy hospital in the Klang Valley and the BOR is more than 85%. In addition to that, we also have another hospital which is under Hospital Singabulu, our old leprosy center, as a satellite facility. So during the COVID-19 time, we were lucky because we had three areas that we could use. One was Hospital Singabulu itself, where our main building is there. And under Hospital Singabulu, we had uh, we had a leprosy center, which is um, uh, at the point of uh, COVID-19, we have actually opened up 
up to uh, 403 beds. And um, next to our leprosy center, there's also a training center, uh, which is, uh, has got about four blocks and total patients or rather patients that can be accommodated there can be up to 2,400 patients. So as, you, as we can see, uh, it was an unprecedented event. So we had to really uh, learn fast and uh, see how we can actually prepare ourselves almost uh, soon uh, to keep at pace, uh, at pace with the uh, COVID-19 disease. So in short, management kept a fast pace of learning, adopting and adapting on, a, on an hourly basis. Being an unprecedented level of cooperation and common purpose uh, that is for COVID-19, we rose above ourselves and dedicated uh, itself to humanity cause of delivering the care to all patients, COVID-19 patients. So things were moving too fast, changing environment, everything was not actually applicable at that point of time because there was nothing that we could refer to other than our past experience in H1N1 and also Muscovy. So I may say that the success is, is attributed to relentless direction carried out by Tyler's teamwork to build COVID-19 emergency preparedness, which was unprecedented in Malaysia. This was the pre-COVID-19 Sungai Buloh Hospital organization structure where we have uh, medical directorate, surgical directorate, clinical support directorate, and the management directorate. So the main um, uh, objective was to, to implement uh, changes in Hospital Sungai Bulo as to prepare the hospital for managing COVID-19 cases in Malaysia. We based on certain approaches for H1N1 pandemic and MERS-CoV epidemic, hospital management developed a COVID-19 pandemic preparedness strategy following the six uh, perspectives. These were some of the uh, tools that were used by other countries uh, to prepare for this COVID-19. We just had a glance at it. And uh, of course, uh, if we could use it, we would, we would definitely adopt and adapt. Okay, coming to uh, Malaysia in, in Hospital Sungai Bulo, what we did was uh, making sure that we could get a meeting with all the head of departments in the hospital to actually share uh, from our infectious disease consultants to share with all the head of departments regards to how COVID-19 was going. And um, with the support from all head of departments and shifting from department response to hospital response and eventually to infectious disease response, Bosby actually uh, gave us a, a lot of confidence that we could move, move this. Number two, uh, our second strategy was actually, uh, maybe I should uh, just mention a little bit about the first strategy, uh, a bit more about the first strategy. So basically uh, in the first strategy, communication between the infectious disease clinicians with the screening centers, nursing and bed management unit, critical care and laboratory uh, helped us in facilitation of all this all the tasks that was required uh, for COVID-19 management and, and updates. So 
facilitation of this task included updating of resources was successfully driven establishing a 24-hour task force we opened up a crisis preparedness and response center on the 9th of march to make sure that the task force uh, was actually selected from the hospital admin infection control quality units and crc and bed management units all the information that was collected was actually relayed to to other authorities within the state and ministry of health and um, we also we also thought of our non covid patients because we had to move them out so we thought of them and we had made networking and arrangement with other semi government hospitals nearby enable for provision of non covid um, patients for emergency services requiring intensive care backup so uh, finally we we led in ourselves into a flat organization structure which eased our daily routines of the hospital administration for covid-19 management so sunai bulo being a dedicated center for infectious disease and trauma involving many sub specialties so we can imagine how scaling down was possible it is such a busy hospital so scaling down the services for covid-19 crisis was extremely challenging the scaling down was done immediately to reduce elective procedures and minimize the usage of operating theaters and icu beds this stage was followed by only allowing emergency cases that did not require uh, the icu beds finally scaling down progress into temporary cessation of all elective and emergency cases which were decanted to nearby hospitals through specialist to specialist referral the women and children services were very challenging as they also follow the same discounting process but being a hospital with the highest delivery rate in slangor with approximately 1000 deliveries per month in klang valley the process of decanting took was very challenging and it took several weeks as others receiving uh, receiving hospitals in klang valley were yet to be equipped to receive these cases immediately nevertheless this uh, resulted in still we may manage to do it but over some time and slowly but surely we managed to do it there were other services also that required attention that is the laboratory department was also activated at full capacity for search of covid-19 cases all covid-19 uh, samples were exclusively investigated in sunai bulo hospital and processed by using the rt pcr based on the ministry of health policy however few samples at that point of time required reconfirmation were processed in collaboration with other uh, institute other institute like institute medical research and um, other services in terms of psychological first aid were also um, were also started for mental and behavioral uh, health support uh, were established uh, to provide continuous care to the healthcare worker and patients by the psychiatry department so if you can see that it was a, a very challenging feat for us because um, uh, all uh, specialist outpatient areas uh, were scaled down and 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 um, we had to immediately um, 
send our non-COVID patients to to be to be actually uh, managed in other hospitals around in Klang Valley. Inpatient, uh, our inpatient clinical uh, services, uh, stabilizing inpatient clinical services and decanting of inpatient clinical services via specialist to specialist referral to all surrounding hospitals who stood on uh, to take on our patients, our non-COVID patients was very challenging because they themselves, the other hospitals itself had VOR of also uh, as high as us and uh, they were actually um, uh, trying to manage to see how to take in these patients to allow us to manage the COVID patients. So expansion of ID and critical care services because of this uh, scaling down, um, I mean scaling down of the elective and decanting uh, patients and, and managing our emergency department, um, uh, taking in patients for green and yellow and decreasing the number of green and yellow and semi-emergencies helped us in expanding our ID and critical care services. So preparation of hospital response for all critical care services to be to be um, to be into accepting COVID-19 cases which involved preparation of specialist and intensive care beds. This was assisted because we were able to uh, scale down and decan our cases to the neighboring hospitals. So next was scaling down specialist uh, outpatient clinic services. We did this because we had to reduce infection rate and mobilize all our resources into COVID-19 care. We pool all our resources to be, to be, to be used for or to be trained and, and, and to be uh, mobilized under COVID-19 patient care uh, throughout the hospital. Of course, uh, when we became a flat organization, everything was under the control of the hospital management and um, Therefore, we could request for greater budget and also pool our human resource together and equipment and facilities and management all came under the hospital response. And therefore, with our crisis preparedness and response center, data availability was there for us to actually go accordingly and see how much resources are required, whether it was in the term of PPE, or whether it was the equipment, whether it was the budget or the human um, resource management, or even preparing the facility in terms of um, in terms of barriers and preparing the facility in terms of the need uh, for managing the uh, the COVID nineteen patients. Direct control resources for both medical and non-medical were, were equal, equally critical during this COVID-19 crisis. So maximizing existing budget, including the national disaster budget for purchasing equipment, example, mechanical ventilators and PPEs for frontliners became a priority. So the pharmacy and the finance department were put in charge for this crucial role or in purchasing and controlling this essential item. A strict, strict control for the release of PPE was also implemented. The hospital logistic and transportation were divided into patient, staff and general transportation. 
COVID-19 uh, patients were transferred by using dedicated ambulance, both at the intra-hospital and inter-hospital transfers. The transport for staffs were also pro provided via bus and vans. The general logistic lorries for transport to different locations of the ward were also mobilized. So our human resource, our frontliners were man manned by medical officers and allied health staffs who were under the hospital admin. All clinicians and allied health uh, staffs were given full training by the occupational safety and health and infection control teams on proper usage, donning and doffing of PPE. Special operating teams were trained with powered uh, air, air purifying respirator PAPR according to each surgical base uh, specialties to operate on COVID-19 cases. So a lot of uh, COVID-19 uh, contingency plans were planned in every department to, to, in, to take on COVID-19 patients when, when we receive patients in the different specialties. Accommodation was also provided to the frontliners on a needs basis. Educate meals were provided by the dietetic for both healthcare workers and patients to cater for meal demands for the initial uh, uh, starting and throughout the whole COVID-19 management period. Same challenges we had in other areas also in the IT areas because we are a fully IT hospital. So we had to cater for the demand uh, which was beyond uh, our numbers, uh, earlier numbers before pre-COVID pre time. And other challenges were also overall security of the hospital were also taken into conduction, uh, uh, consideration for both staff and patient management. As we know, this is something unprecedented and it's new. There was a, a lot of fear. There was a lot of fright and uh, even some patients were, 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 were find, finding uh, chances to, to escape and we had to do so much to, um, to make sure our security was well manned. And in, at this point of COVID-19 uh, uh, period, we had a function that was uh, unusual. We were not only functioning as a hospital, but we were also functioning as something like they call it like a hotel because patients came in and they were shocked that they were not able to go back because they were actually, uh, uh, they need to be in the hospital. Uh, otherwise they would breach the infection prevention control uh, policy. And um, um, and the same time, they would need to be quarantined uh, for a period of time. So therefore, they were uh, they were actually um, um, surprised, and they were they had a lot of fear. So the hospital uh, medical dental advisory committee restructured the pre-COVID management into a flat hospital organization structure based on the need of the COVID-19 crisis. So um, we have actually set up in the three different areas of our, our facility uh, in main hospitals in Bulo, in uh, leprosy center and in the, in, in the training center, uh, which is all around the same compound. We have actually set up committees uh, to make sure uh, all the different areas are manned by leaders and we and all of them reported to me and daily we would have meetings uh, to iron out our issues uh, and uh, problems that we face as we went along. So 
this was the hospital uh, uh, COVID-19 hospital response organization is a flat organization where everybody reported to uh, the central that is the hospital and uh, it is all um, uh, we all had to work as a team it's um, uh, communication was very uh, important it was on a daily basis sometimes on an hourly basis uh, until we, we reach uh, some uh, decision so totally we had more than over 2000 beds uh, which was functioning at that point of time and uh, we treated more than uh, one third of patients in this hospital so pre-covid uh, icu we had only 42 functioning beds during covid 19 because of our scaling down of our services our decanting of uh, um, totally finally at the end we managed to decant even the emergency services to nearby uh, universities and and hospitals uh, we managed to get uh, 108 icu beds uh, our capacity was 108. So at the same time, we also needed to ensure there is an uninterrupted oxygen supply uh, from, from uh, which was increased from alternate day to daily supply. ICU facilities were revamped to makeshift green zone by blocking supply from the main ICU and making sure the clean air and the dirty air do not mix. So therefore, uh, to take care of our healthcare workers uh, in the green zones. So if you can see, we uh, hospital Sungai Bulo com uh, comparatively uh, throughout, we have uh, managed um, more than one third of patients uh, in the whole uh, of Malaysia and uh, our admission and discharges, as we can see, and our mortality was one of the least mortality uh, in, in our hospital in Sungai Bulo. So, uh, hospitals uh, worldwide will be challenged by having shortage of bed and reduced resources during COVID-19 pandemic. But uh, we have managed it in such a way that we have a lot of uh, backup and a lot of help from Ministry of Health and our state of Selangor. And uh, we were lucky that we were fully supported by Ministry of Health, by our state Selangor. And, uh, and, and we uh, overcome our 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 we prepared our hospital using the six strategies to overcome these challenges and managed to provide excellent healthcare service for our COVID-19 patients. Training, as I said, it went on and on daily. We daily trained our, our healthcare staff for donning and doffing in preparation to be, to be managing the COVID-19 patients in the wards, in the ICU. And that was uh, ongoing, like almost a daily basis to making sure uh, refresher courses were also given to them and daily reminders were given to them. And we made sure our resources were kept to the optimal level uh, to take care of our healthcare workers. Nevertheless, of course, we had some uh, infection in the hospital, but we overcome it uh, soon enough. And we come, came out with a vigilante committee, which actually was walking around to making sure and reminding each and every staff in the different areas, especially in the pantries and in the OTs, to making sure that they follow the SOP strictly in wearing the mask and also um, sanitizing and avoiding crowded places and confined places. And this was actually almost done daily. And our vigilante committee, which was actually headed by our head of one 
one of our head of departments with few head of departments in the committee were actually walking around in the different areas of the hospital to making sure daily that the SOPs are followed. So finally, I must say that good teamwork and a flat organization structure with pooling of resources and resources kept at optimal level and continuous manpower training are the key elements for hospital preparedness of COVID-19 pandemic. As I said earlier, our hospital is a secondary and tertiary hospital like any other hospital. It was not uh, planned uh, to actually uh, take up uh, COVID-19 uh, patients uh, almost immediately, but it was repurposed and uh, made, uh, made uh, to to fit for the COVID-19, we had actually come out with some barriers according to COVID-19 uh, disease. So we have come out with some barriers and we had used a lot of uh, telephones for communications uh, to, with our patients uh, to also making sure that our healthcare staffs are not directly exposed and, and make sure that our, our healthcare staffs are properly trained in managing uh, the patients and uh, in a, uh, and making sure the safety of our healthcare staff all the time. Thank you. Oh, thank you. Thank you, Dr. Kuldeep, for sharing with us your journey. And I'm sure you must have gone through an extreme situation with high level of uncertainty and stress. Uh, I have some questions here that was posted. Uh, question number one. How are you catching up with the backlog as you have done a lot of scaling down in the last five months? Well, <laughs> that's a good question. Very good question. Okay. Uh, we are actually um, slowly but surely we, are, we, are, we, we have come back to hybrid. Eh? We have come back to hybrid. So um, we are trying to uh, look if when, when it comes to elective cases, what my consultants have done um, they have uh, sort of a screen and see who needs an earlier appointment compared to the rest. And of course, the stable patients, we are, we are handling them online. So we are using different strategies to making sure uh, that um, uh, we are going to cope with the backlog. So one of them is online uh, with the stable patients. The other one is to bring back patients according to appointment slowly but surely but looking at the status of the patient uh, which needs an earlier um, earlier coming in uh, to see us uh, face to face and um, we have also extended um, uh, we, we, we thought of actually uh, looking at uh, shift uh, strategy uh, in certain uh, departments like the ID department they they look at shift work um, to work till at, I think it's eight o'clock if I'm not mistaken, eight o'clock in the night to bring in those cases to come in uh, to see us, uh, especially those in the clinics. Huh? So that is one of the ways uh, we have looked at it so far. So far. much more, much more discussions are going on how yeah. to assist our patients which are uh, uh, pending uh, till today. I'm sure there's a lot more work post-pandemic, am I right, Dr. Kuldeep? Yeah, okay, I have one more question here. What will you do differently if you have to do this all over again? I really hope you don't have to do this all over again, <laughs> but you, you can try answering this question. Yeah, sure. 
I think if I have to do it all over again, I think what I'll suggest is the, the hospital being a center of excellence for infectious mm -hmm. disease need to be prepared in terms of the facility. Uh, so therefore, uh, I would not wait uh, to, to advise this uh, in terms of Hospital Sungai Bulu. Uh, we need to have enough uh, negative pressure rooms, isolation rooms, which are well equipped for, for this kind of uh, uh, pandemic uh, uh, at a large uh, scale. Uh, I, would re real, I would think that the hospital learning from this pandemic should prepare itself uh, if ever we have to face this again in terms of the infrastructure, the human resource should be properly trained for critical care areas and um, infrastructure must be prepared uh, both in the engineering aspects or in the space aspects la, you know uh, being an infectious disease hospital and going being a hospital that's going to face the first uh, first brunt of uh, any pandemic i mm. think the hospital need to be very much prepared yeah. thank you thank you dr kodek thanks thank again you. and uh, so i think thank you to everyone uh, we have come to the end of day two morning session of Symposium 2 and Plenary 4. I would like to thank to all our three speakers, uh, Dr. Chu Cheng Hoon, Prof. Organ Gurel, and also Dr. Kuldeep Kaur. Uh, uh, with that, thank you all. Thank you to all our participants, our speakers, and hope you have had a fruitful day too. Until we meet again, goodbye.